Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Stolen Goodbyes podcast with me, Karen Rice. This is being recorded remotely due to the COVID-19 restrictions. Today I'm joined by Jerry Vance from Princeton, West Virginia in the States, who lost her husband, James D. Vance, to COVID-19 on New Year's Day this year. He was just 52 years old. Welcome, Jerry. Hi, thanks. I wanted to begin by asking you what your husband James was like, both as a person and as a father. Um, James was probably one of the most selfless men that you could ever meet. Um, His whole life was to serving others or taking care of others. Um, As soon as he graduated from high school, he joined the Marine Corps. Once he was out of the Marine Corps, he was a police officer. He was a police officer for the last 23 years. Um, he was just kind of like a protector for everybody. Um, for me, the kids, um, he was the best father and he was an amazing girl dad. I mean, we have Tyler, but there was just something about daddy's little girls um, that he, I mean, he didn't miss a dance recital or soccer practice or t-ball or any event. Um, I think our kids have tried every activity, um, marching band and dance classes. I mean, if you can try it, our kids probably have. And no matter what they tried, he supported them, um, took them to practice. And I mean, he just, he was a proud dad. Like he was involved. He, he did, as much here at the house for them and with them as like I would. He wasn't the type who like assumed that there would be things that would be like mom's job or dad's job. He did anything and everything around the house. And even for me, I mean, he, if he knew I was tired or having a bad day or something, he would do laundry or he would offer to cook dinner or clean the house. I mean, he, he just, anything we needed. And he always put us ahead of him. He, I mean, he was just awesome. <laughs> so he sounds like a hands-on father and husband. Yeah, very much so. How did you two meet? Um, I had been living in Florida and moved back to West Virginia, which I'm originally from here, um, because my dad had gotten sick and um, I needed a job. And I found one at the police department as a dispatcher. And we just worked together. Um, I think we were on different shifts at first. I think he worked day shift and I worked evening shift. And he honestly asked me out for nine months before I would go out with him. Like he started asking me out in November. And it was actually, and I didn't go, we didn't go out until the next September because um, there was a 12 year age difference between us. And I just kind of thought, you know, he had kids and I, we were at different places and he just kept saying, give me a chance. I promise. And so I did. 
and from the time we went out um our first date was september the 14th and we were engaged november the 19th so two wow. months later we were engaged wow um he always would say it just felt right he knew um i felt the same way we were married in nine months and for the last over 15 years the only time we've not been together was when he was at the hospital i mean we the longest time that we had been apart in the 15 years was three days for like a weekend trip so what was his most lovable quality um i think his smile and how much he loved every like loved us and took care of us um he but he always had a smile on his face he always i mean he joked around a lot he he could make anybody laugh um even if i was upset over something or he he knew how to turn things around so that i would kind of cheer up or he just had a, he was full of life just his personality can you describe his smile? <laughs> he, I honestly don't even know how to put it into words. He just, he, he smiled with his whole, like you could, it wasn't like a fake smile or like, it was like his whole body. You could just look at his whole body and tell that he was happy or when he was smiling or like you could see it in his eyes and everything that he was just, an incredible happy person i mean he really was what do you miss about him now on a daily basis um hearing him here in the house um we we have a huge house um we have a three-story house and a lot of the times like say i might be upstairs or he was downstairs and even if we were both home he would send me texts and say I love you or like miss you or just think like random things and I just miss hearing from him just having him here it's very hard very recent yeah it's really recent so was James fit and healthy was he a healthy person yeah, yeah he um he had high blood pressure but he had had high blood pressure his entire life like even when he went to the marine corps when he was 18 years old um i mean it was handled with medicine it wasn't there was never any major concerns over anything he was healthy he had had a physical um probably about eight months before he got sick um and i mean he had had a stress test and everything and the doctor had told him that his heart was great um i mean he was just he really was it was it was a shock to not only us but i mean it's been a shock to our entire community because everybody knew him from work and from being a police officer and it's just unreal that you know i guess on on the news here and i'm sure i mean i don't i know it's in other parts of the world and stuff it's being portrayed different but here they kind of seem to portray it as only the elderly or those with the major underlying issues are the ones that are losing their lives and it's just not true i mean 
he he didn't fit the profile of someone who should have lost his battle with COVID. So can you describe how he fell ill? Um, the, on December the 1st, he had a slight cough and I'm a teacher. So I had told him, I said, you know, you probably need to go get tested because if we're sick, I can't go to school. And he said, I, I'm, I'm fine. You're, I'm, it's, we had just, we had had some issues with our heating system. So he swore, like, he swore that it was where we had just got our heater fixed. And he was like, I think I'm just dried out from the heat. I'm okay. The next day, I said, how do you feel? I feel great. And he wasn't coughing that day. Well, that was on Wednesday. On Thursday night before bed, I felt like a tickle in my throat. And I said, if I still feel like this in the morning, I'll have to go get a test because I can't go to school. And he, he joked and laughed and said, I'm telling you, living with three girls will be the death of me. He said, you're all so dramatic. He said, yeah, it's not COVID. And I said, well, I'm going to go get tested anyway. So Friday morning, um, I went to get tested. Um, even the doctor that I saw said that she didn't think I had COVID. She thought I had a sinus infection and, but because of the situation, everybody was, that was in with symptoms was being tested and they came back into the room within like, she told me it would probably take 15 to 20 minutes and it was eight minutes. And she came back in and just really kind of frank. She said, well, COVID positive. And I mean, I, I was shocked. I was, I mean you've heard about this monster on the news for a year and then you're told you have it. And so I immediately sent him a text message and said, I'm positive. And he called me, which he normally would just reply to the text. And he said, you're joking with me. And I was like, no, I'm not. I said, get dressed, make sure you guys are ready. I'm coming home to get you. And I was going to take him and Julia and Jamie to have them tested. And, uh, so I came home and we got everybody and we went to test and he had started feeling worse. Um, just driving to get him tested. He was freezing and he had spiked a fever. He was freezing and shivering in my car and had the heater cranked up. And so obviously he was positive. Both of our girls were positive. Um, so we were all quarantining at home. Um, that was on Friday on Saturday. He felt a little better Saturday morning, and he has a workshop out back. He, he liked to do woodworking and build. He was always building something or tinkering with something. and So he went out to his workshop, and he came right back in, probably 15 minutes. And he said, I just don't feel like doing anything. I'm just going to rest. And I said, well, that's probably best anyway. So he laid down. He had his man cave room that we kind of called his man cave he has a couch in there a recliner and he was laying on his couch he's watching a movie and I was upstairs in the bed and we would I would text and come down and check on him and I would get him something to drink and then make sure I had the girls something to drink and I was giving out everybody's vitamins and kind of taking care of everybody well he kept saying that his stomach was hurting 
and he wouldn't eat anything. So one of my friends made him some homemade vegetable soup because he loves soup, trying to think of something he would eat. And he did eat it. That ended up being the last thing that he ate. Um, he Sunday, he woke up. He was very nauseous. He was throwing up, like violently throwing up. And I tried to get him to go to the hospital on Sunday. And he didn't want to. He said, I don't need to. I'm just, and I was worried about him getting dehydrated. So one of our family friends is a doctor. She used to be our family doctor. However, she, she's not in that practice anymore. I text her and I said, hey, I need you to help me convince James he needs to go to the doctor. And she said, what's wrong? And I told her that we had COVID. And I said, but it's not respiratory. I said, but he can't, I mean, he couldn't keep a sip of water down. We had tried Pedialyte, Gatorade. I said, he's going to get so dehydrated that he's so weak, he can't really do anything. So she started texting him and he agreed to go to the emergency room the next day, which would have been Monday to see her because she would be in the emergency room. And he, that's how James was. He hated doctors. He... He just, he was scared. Of, like, he just, I don't know. There, he just didn't like doctors, didn't, didn't want to be, like, I guess he didn't want to admit that he was sick or whatever. So Monday morning, um, he got up. Um, he tried to drink some coffee. Uh, still really sick. He got ready to go to the hospital. He stood at the bottom of the stairs and told us, I'll be back. I come down the stairs. I offered to take him. He said, I'll be fine. They're not going to let you in with me anyway. So you stay home with the girls. And I said, well, we can drive you. And he insisted, no, stay home. You guys don't worry about it. I'm fine. That was the last time I saw him. They kept him. Um, they, he was at our local hospital. They did not have any COVID beds. So they sent him to a hospital four hours away um, in Morgantown, West Virginia, at West Virginia University. He was there. They got him there around midnight. So Tuesday afternoon, the doctor called. I had talked to James. He had texted me, and I had we had FaceTimed, and I had talked to him. And the doctor called and said that his lungs, that he had COVID pneumonia, and that his lungs looked like blown glass. He said his lungs look really really bad and he said our next step is probably to put him on a ventilator to let his lungs rest and it was such a shock because two hours earlier I had talked to James so I called him real quick and I could visibly see like we FaceTime and I could see in his face that he was scared but he was still being our protector telling me I'm okay don't worry about me I'm going to be okay so and, was, that, was that a week a week yeah a week from his first cough so like and only four days after his positive test so that was Tuesday December the 8th they put him on the ventilator that night and they put him on the ECMO machine the doctor at WVU said that he felt like if they went ahead and put him on the ECMO before he needed it like to be proactive that it would be better than being reactive when his body got even worse 
So I agreed to the ECMO machine, um, which then once they put him on ECMO, they had to transfer him then to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to a hospital. So he was then between five and six hours away from home. Um, they flew him from Morgantown to Pittsburgh by helicopter. Um, he spent the next eight days on ECMO. Um, they were able to get him off the ECMO machine. Um, they would try back and forth to get him off of the ventilator. Um, he would get really agitated. What was um, the ECMO machine doing for him precisely? Do you the know? ECMO machine, it, um, your blood flows, it's connected through your artery in your neck and your artery in your groin and your blood flows out of your body and is like cleaned, kind of like gets like the carbon dioxide and gases out and then it's oxygenated and put back in so that his lungs weren't having to do the oxygen, put the oxygen in his blood. It was kind of doing everything for him to completely allow his body to rest because his lungs were in such bad shape. Um, they got every day for the most part, it would be he was stable or they would have like a spike in his blood pressure or then he would have a day where like his blood pressure was low, nothing major. Every day the doctors were like, we think he's doing great. Um, this is right where he should be. You know, from the beginning, they told me it wasn't a quick process. Um, when we got to 14 days on the ventilator, um, a doctor called and said, he's been on the ventilator for 14 days. We sometimes look at doing a trach at this point, but I don't think we're there yet. He said, but sometime in the next 24 to 48 hours, we will have to have that conversation if we can't get him off the ventilator. Um, the only concern at that point was he did still have the pneumonia but every time they tried to like turn his sedation back to wake him he would get so agitated that they would have to resedate him but at that point it had been almost three weeks so i really truly think that he didn't know where he was or what was going on and if you wake up and you have that tube in your throat you probably are going to be agitated to an extent and like i said he was alone it wasn't like I could be with him to like hold his hand or to try to talk to him. Um, I how did you, offer. How do you feel about that? I hate it. That keeps me up at night. The fact that he was alone has been one of the biggest factors that has really messed with me. Um, I worry constantly um, if he wondered if I abandoned him or why I wasn't there. Um, he did have some wonderful nurses that uh, I've actually spoken with since, but during the process, they would like call and talk to me and ask me things. And then like one nurse called and was like, what kind of music does he like? I want to play music for him. Like they, she was trying to help calm him down. And she would tell him, oh, I've talked to your wife five times today. She's so worried about you or. I talked to your daughter and like they were trying to talk to him and like so, since I couldn't um she would hold the phone up to his ear and let me talk 
they did that as FaceTime on Christmas, which he couldn't talk. He was still sedated on the ventilator. Um, he ended up spending a total of 19 days on the ventilator. They were able to get him off of the vent on day 19. Um, the doctor called me that night and said that he felt like if we could go 24 to 48 hours with James maintaining his own airway, that he could probably say he was out of the woods. So the next two days, I clung to the phone, worried, calling constantly, and he was improving. Um, on the third day, they told me that they were going to start physical therapy. They talked to me about occupational therapy and speech therapy. So in my mind, I was like, they wouldn't be doing these therapies and offering these services if they didn't feel like he was getting better. So it kind of put me at peace a little bit because in my mind, I kept thinking, he's coming home. He's coming home to us. Well, December the 31st was Julia's birthday. And everybody at the hospital, like I kept saying, I hope that we can get him to where he can talk to us for her birthday because that we had wanted to talk to him for Christmas, but obviously he was sedated. So we had hoped that for her birthday. So the nurse called that morning. She told me how great he was doing. We set up a zoom for the, um, for the, at four 30. Um, she called me back at four and she said, I'm going to have to push it back to five because the iPad is dead. But she said, it's five o'clock. Okay. And I was like, absolutely as long as we can talk to him does not matter and so um right around 5 five fifteen or so um we were able to talk to him now his voice was still really groggy and whispery like raspy but it was the first time that we had honestly talked to him in a month and he, I got to talk to him. I told him I loved him. Um, he told me he loved me. I had hired a plumber because we had some issues that day. And I said, I had to hire a plumber because you're not home. You have to hurry home to take care of your stuff because I don't know how to do this. And he kind of joked and rolled his eyes at me and laughed. And he told Julia happy birthday and that he loved her. And um, Jamie, um, the youngest, had gotten a Barbie house, and she told him that he needed to come home and put her Barbie house together, and he said, okay, and so we all got to talk to him, and 12 hours later, he was gone. Um, we went, I mean, we had, it was the best conversation, we had the best feeling, and that night, we went out to dinner for Julia's birthday, and when we came back, about 20 to 12, right before midnight, I called his nurse and I said, could you just tell him that we said Happy New Year? I said, the girls and I have grape juice. We're going to watch the ball drop and we're going to bed. But tell him that we said Happy New Year and that we love him. And the nurse called me back and told me right after midnight and said, I told him what you said. And he just got a big smile on his face and said, love them. And then I found out that two hours later is when he went unresponsive. And 
they were running tests and everything to find out what was going on because everything had been so stable and good that and he went unresponsive and kind of got so bad so quick that they couldn't even do some of the testing that they wanted to do because of his condition um he ended up going into cardiac arrest um and I had started to Pittsburgh um, that morning when they called and told me that he had taken a really bad turn. They had agreed that I could come see him because the hospital only lets you see him for end of life. However, with me being so far away, um, they were trying to do everything they could to keep him until I got there. Um, I had a state police escort um, who were getting me there much faster than I could have gotten there myself. Um, I was just over halfway there when I got the phone call that he had went into cardiac arrest. Um, they asked me if I wanted them to continue to do CPR, and I said, absolutely, do everything you can. I won't, I won't tell you to change on that. And that was 11.33, and at right around 12.30, I just had a feeling that he was gone. And right after that, I got a phone call from the doctor and he uh, told me that at 1221, James had passed and that they had tried and done everything, but they weren't able to get him back. And I asked if I could still come see him and the doctor said, absolutely. So we went on to Pittsburgh um, we had a, we, we stopped and I told the kids, um, kind of on the side of the road about their dad and that took about an hour. Um, but we went on to Pittsburgh. Um, they did let me, the doc, the nursing staff and the doctors at the hospital, like they knew I was coming. Um, they met me at the door. They walked me to the room. There was five different doctors who came in and spoke with me. One was so upset. Um, he just kept saying he was supposed to be our success story. And that's what his nurse kept saying. That out of all the patients in the, in the wing that had COVID, he was the only one that wasn't on a ventilator. He was one of the youngest. And I mean, he was fit and healthy. He was a police officer. I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't like he was extremely overweight or, oh, I mean, he didn't, he didn't fit the image. And like I said, he had been, he was the only one in the COVID ICU that was not on a ventilator. And he had been off the ventilator for five days. So he was supposed to be their success story. He was supposed to be the one they saved. And I think now that I've spoken with some of the nurses, they're struggling with it as well. Just because, I mean, they had, you know, they'd spent a month with him. And like the one nurse that was playing the music for him and things. I mean, it makes me, it helps me that she cares because he wasn't just a number 
or statistic or just another body there to her. But I hate that they're seeing so much like death and sickness and what they're going through. I mean, they they see just a little fraction of a glimpse into these people's lives and then they're stuck with I mean I guess her and I will forever be bonded now over her taking care of my husband and she was with him the last day and that like I said that's been the one thing that has kept me up at night is that he was alone because we hadn't been apart I know that I know that everybody kind of says that pictures of relationships is like that, but we really in I mean we took big family vacations together. We we for fifteen years to only be apart three days, that was the longest we had ever went without seeing each other. And then it was like December seventh came. And I never saw him again. What was it like when you saw him in hospital? Um, they had cleaned him up and unhooked everything. And he looked like he was sleeping on the couch. He, he didn't look sick. I mean, he, lo he lost about 40 pounds over the month. Um, but he hadn't had, been able to have a meal. I mean, I know they did tube feeds, but I mean, he, he lost 40 pounds from the time he was admitted until that day. So he, he looked like he, I mean, he looked like he had lost a lot of weight, but other than that, he looked like he was just sleeping on the couch. He didn't, he looked way better than I expected him to. How do you feel about the fact that you couldn't say goodbye? I kind of feel... I wish I could have made it so that I could say goodbye. But at the same time, my last goodbye to him was the night before when we FaceTimed. And I almost feel like he knew because he kept turning his head to the side. And if I asked him something, he would turn and look and then turn his head back like this. It was almost like he couldn't look me in the face. And I kind of feel like that he knew by the way he was acting and he kept telling us that he loved us and he he said so many times i love you and he always told me he loved me but it wouldn't have i mean it wasn't it wasn't normal for randomly in the middle of a conversation for him to say i love you and i feel like at least I have that conversation from the night before. And I didn't have to be, like, I'm glad I didn't see them do CPR on him or anything like that. I wouldn't have wanted to see him struggle. Because it was so sudden. It wasn't expected. So it wasn't like he could have just peacefully went with me there. I mean, it would have been... It was it was so sudden and such a shock that you know they the whole the whole hospital staff you know as they would have rushed in to try to save him 
I'm kind of glad that's not the last image that I have. If you could go back now and change anything, what would it be? Um, sometimes I think that I would try to make him go to the hospital sooner, but after talking to the doctors and the nurses, the one day that I that it took me to get him to go wouldn't have made a difference with his lungs. But like I said, we didn't even know he wasn't having any trouble breathing. So, I mean, I know it's COVID and that's what everybody says. Hey, but he didn't have those symptoms. Um, and I do wish that when he said goodbye that day, I wish I would have hugged him instead of just kind of saying, let me take you to the hospital and us talking back and forth about him driving himself. Um, like I said, since we both were sick, it wasn't like he could have contaminated me or I could have given it to him. I wish I would have given him a good hug because <laughs> that's one of the things. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I worry that, I don't know. You know, you don't know what goes to people's heads when they're in the hospital. And I do know that once I got his belongings from the hospital and I went through his phone, like he, when he was still texting me and Tyler, he was telling us that he was going to be okay. But he was telling some of his friends how sick he was. And then he was scared. But he never told me or Tyler that. And I think that was still his way of protecting us. But I wish he would have told me. Hey, I do feel this bad. Or So maybe that we could have had some of those conversations. But... I mean, I know in my heart that he knows I love him. And I know he loved me. I just never dreamed that he wouldn't come home. Up until I got the phone call that he was gone, I believed he would get better. Even driving to Pittsburgh that morning, in my head, the doctor had already told me it's not looking good. He's probably not going to make it. But in my head, I still thought James is strong. If anybody can beat this, it can be James. And I mean, I honestly believe that until the doctor told me that the time they pronounced him, I thought he was coming home. Have you been able to organize a funeral for him, Jerry? Um, we did have a funeral. Um, we had it January the 6th. Um, he had a full police military funeral. Um, we had it at a National Guard armory so that it could be socially distanced, big time, spraced out. Um, he... Uh, he probably would have hated it because he was not the type to focus on himself. He wouldn't wanted the attention. He was very humble, but he deserved every bit of it. Um, 
like I said, he had the full military honors, like the Marine Corps did the their gun salute and folded the flag, and the police department was the honor guard, and they were the pallbearers, and it was very nice. Um, it, like I said, he probably would have said, I can't believe this many people were here for me, um, but he was so loved and respected by even people he arrested have messaged me and sent letters and stuff that tell me how great of a person he was or you know he treated me with respect or he turned my life around and I hate that we had to find out this way just how much the community did love him but I mean his services were really nice they had a com the community had a candlelight vigil for him um that it there's just been so many little things like that that people have done which the vigil was not little by any means but and yet um, and yet it must feel completely surreal to you it can it does i mean i just got his death certificate last week and even holding the death certificate and reading the death certificate and seeing it in my hand where he spent four weeks at the hospital that Tyler and I have talked that we both still have moments where it almost seems like he's still at the hospital. Um, it's, it, it's, I can't put into words this situation. I know I'm not the only one in this situation, so I don't want to make it sound like I just, it's unreal. I never dreamed at 39 that I would be a widow. Um, you know, I figured we had another 30 years or more. And I hurt for my kids. I hurt that they went from having the best father ever to now not having him. Um, a lot of my pain not only comes from losing my best friend, but from them losing their daddy. And they have been, they are where I find my strength because all three of them have their little quirks or things that remind me of their daddy. So, I just, I try to stay strong for them, but at the same time, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I, I try, but there's only so much. I mean, and it's just, it's unreal. In terms of what you've been through, um, your loss, and the manner in which, you know, you, what, you lost your husband, your soulmate, what's the most important message that you want to share with the world? Um, just that, you know, these patients and COVID patients are not just a statistic. I mean, I, I don't even know what the count is worldwide, but I know in the U.S. we're at 450,000 deaths now. They're not, he's not just a number. He, he has a family that loved him and depended on him. And even though, like I hear so many people say, I can't wait until this is over and the world goes back to normal. 
entire world will never be normal again. And even, even if things, even, you know, if COVID goes away, our world will forever be changed by COVID. Thank you.